The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, we're getting back into 1 Peter. We've detoured for about a month, so if you haven't been here in a while, you're Jump right in. So we're, uh, we're at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. And where we're at in 1 Peter is the, really chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10 is more of the introductory material. And you would say uh, mainly, we use this expression a lot in theology of the imperatives and indicatives and the idea is that the indicatives are who you are. And then all the imperatives flow from that. So like, you know, when you get to Romans and you first 11 chapters, who you are, and you get to chapter 12 and it's offer yourselves as living sacrifice and it's all practical, right? Ephesians, you get to chapter four, verse one, and you know, then you get all these imperatives. First Peter two, when you get to 2.11, then we're gonna start getting all these imperatives. But he wraps up here with these indicatives of who you are, seven things seven rapid-fire things of who you are. And it's really important because you think about what is the church? What's the purpose of the church? Why do you go to church? I mean, you hear people articulate answers, and you hear things like, well, I want my children to have good moral values. I want them to learn about Jesus. I want to find a good church where the preaching is very practical and speaks into my daily life and the music's uplifting and when you leave you just feel encouraged. I mean those are some things you'll often hear. What might be wrong with some of those ideas about going to church that were just articulated? Well they're very consumer, consumeristic about our needs first and what the church can do for me rather than what I can do for the church, but there wasn't anything distinctively Christian about what I just mentioned. You could experience that in a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness church. You're going to hear about Jesus. He's your example. Be like him. And you'd hear some probably good music and probably get some good moralistic teaching. So what, why do we go to church? And I think 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 is great for deconstructing the bad ideas we might have about the church and for constructing, rather, a proper corporate identity as the body of Christ, his bride. Here's what God's word says, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray. Fathers, we consider this portion of your word. We ask not only that you'd illuminate it to us, but that you'd apply it deep into the recesses of our heart. And that our identity would be this identity. And that we would see our purpose for belonging to the body of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the 
some of you that are, have children, or maybe you remember this, here's the church, here's the steeple, look inside and see all the people, right? Do you remember that? Well, what's interesting about that statement is see the church, and here's the steeple. The church is described as a building, and if you want to see the Christians, you've got to look inside the building. <laughs> and what Peter is describing here is the context is all about the temple, and the temple being made up of stones, Jesus being the cornerstone, but the metaphor is all spiritual. There's nothing physical. There's nothing brick and mortar about 1 Peter 4, 2 to 10, is there? Jesus isn't literally a stone. He isn't a literal cornerstone, and we're not literal stones either, and we're not making up a physical temple. Rather, we're all living stones, building up a spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple. And you remember when Jesus died, what's the first thing that happened? The temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. No more temple. No more need for a temple. Do you remember Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well? He said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is, is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And you could say that passage became distinctly fulfilled as soon as that temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And you think about Peter is writing to this exiled community. There are these scattered bunch of Christians, mainly Gentile, scattered all over Asia Minor. They're oppressed, starting to experience some persecution as the epistle indicates. They're marginalized. There are people without status, without honor without a home in this world and it would have been very easy for them to think like a lot of Christians do in our culture where you start to think in self-pity categories. Everyone is passing me by or look at all the stuff that's happening in our culture and you feel like you're just a speed bump on the face of progress and it's real easy to think poor me and to start thinking in categories of shame, humiliation, you see, the world didn't make much of these Christians, but they did make much fun of them. And Peter wants them to know who they are. What is their identity as believers in the household of God? And it's pretty astounding what he has to say. Do you know how I think we tend to read, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession? Do you know how I think we tend to read that? Blah, 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 blah. Like, it's just, it just is like, what does that mean? It's just kind of like language that we could repeat. Oh, yeah, we're a holy nation, we're a chosen race. Like, what? have we ever really sat and like reflected on that? Or we just say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're given this terminology. Isn't that nice? Well, your sevenfold identity as a corporate body of believers. One, you're a chosen race. Two, you're a royal priesthood. 
Three, you're a holy nation. Four, you're a people of his own possession. Prize possession is literally what that means. Five, you're called out of darkness, a called people. Six, you're now the people of God. And seven, you're a people who've received mercy. That's pretty good news. And we'll kind of break that down. So first of all, you're a chosen race. And if you look back at the, the reflection verses, there's two verses that are quoted. Because this imagery or the scriptures that what Peter is referring to is he's directly quoting these passages from the Old Testament. So he's directly referring to Isaiah 43, 20 and 21, where it says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, river in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. And literally in the Septuagint, it's chosen race, same two Greek words as 1 Peter 2, 9. The people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Sound like the end of 2.9? Called out of darkness into his marvelous light to declare his praise. So that's where Peter's getting that from. Now what's interesting about that is Isaiah 43 is a promise of restoration after the Babylonian exile. They've been taken into captivity, which I just prayed that Jeremiah 29.7, when you go down to Babylon, you know, pray for its peace, for in its peace will be your peace. Pray, you know, you're exiled. That's, that's what's happening there. Well, Peter takes these same verses and says to the people of God in exile, isn't it interesting, how does 1 Peter begin? To the elect exiles, and how does it end? Send greetings down to to so-and-so who's in Babylon, referring to Rome. So it's making you, as you read the bookends of the book, you realize, oh, Babylonian exile is in Peter's mind, and he's using that imagery to tell believers, just like they were in exile, so are you now believers. And so even with this quoting here of a chosen race, referring back to Isaiah 43, it's connecting the dots that the Babylonian exile is Peter wants the people of God to know that the promises for Israel after the Babylonian exile is that God's going to give drink to his chosen people. He's going to bring a people back to declare his praise. He's saying that's promises for you now as the body of Christ. You're my chosen race. And so the language used of Israel is now spoken for the church that's comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Karen Jobes, who has this excellent uh, commentary on 1 Peter, she says this, in biblical theology, and this, this quote, by the way, is in your reflection quotes, biblical theology, Israel's deliverance from exile in Babylon is the typological forerunner of the greater deliverance achieved by Jesus Christ. Deliverance of God's people out of darkness into light. Peter here makes the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, whatever, though from many races, they constitute a new race. You're a chosen race, singular. A new race of those who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She goes on and says, here is the foundational cure for the evils of racism in human society. And have you noticed in the conversations about race, even amongst Christians, I don't hear 1 Peter 2.9. I don't hear the doctrine of election. I don't hear this idea that you're a chosen race. It's, It's needed. It's part of the conversation. The understanding of Christians that they have formed a new race among 
humanity was precisely one of the points, she writes, for which they were criticized and persecuted by first century pagan society. Why was that? Because Christians were perceived to be people that repudiated pleasures, they weren't involved in the theaters, they didn't go to the races, they, weren't, they didn't go to the gladi- gladiator combats, they, d- they broke home in family tri- uh, ties, their businesses were often plundered or not doing very well because they didn't participate in all the, the pagan guilds, and they abandoned pagan religious rituals and they uh, weren't involved in the civic duties as, as they should have been probably. He says, the very concept of the new race caused many of the the popular opposition to Christianity in the first few centuries. So the idea here is that God has a chosen race, and the chosen race is is not a particular ethnicity. It's blood-bought Christians that God the Father chose from all eternity and gave them to his Son, whom the Spirit would apply that work to. You see, Peter's using this this imagery of Israel in the Old Testament, and now he's saying this is the greater deliverance, the greater uh, bringing back from exile is Jesus bringing his people to himself out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we're a chosen race. It doesn't mean a choice race. That means, you know, if you just say, well, we're a choice people, like, like there was something special about us. You may recall in Deuteronomy 7 where God says, I chose you about Israel. And he says, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 7, 6. Because Peter also has this imagery in his head, or same verbiage. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Same idea here in this passage of 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You see, the Bible makes it clear that if we're in Christ and we've come to know him, that we actually didn't choose him, rather he chose us. Just listen for a moment to a few of these Verses. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Acts 13, 48 says the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. Who appointed them to eternal life? God did. Ephesians, beginning of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed us in every, with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's just a good one to memorize. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. There are a lot of other verses we could look at, but just look at the context. I mean, how did this scripture reading begin this morning? It began with a but. It began with a but because these people are stumbling over the cornerstone and they're stumbling because they're disobeying God's word 
they're responsible for it, but it also says that they were destined for this. Boy, that's like one of the scariest verses in the whole Bible. It's in there. I didn't write this. I didn't make this up. It's God's word. But you have been chosen, a chosen race. So it's very sobering. We're a chosen race. Two were a royal priesthood. What does that mean? We're all priests. The priesthood of all believers, that idea. Well, what, it, what makes a priest a priest? Priests have privileges. Priests have access. Priests have a duty. What was that? Well, they represented men to God and God to men. That's what priests did. And they were always offering sacrifices. And Jesus is the royal high priest who lives to intercede for his people as our high priest. We have an advocate. And what we see here is that Jesus, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 6, we're told a couple of times that Jesus was chosen. Jesus was chosen. And then it says, you're chosen. Jesus is a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Chosen by God and precious. Chapter 2, verse 4. So twice Jesus is told he's chosen, and then we're told that we, his people, are chosen. And we are chosen to be this, the idea is that Jesus is a king and a priest, and so he's made us a royal, the idea here is a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. This is royal language. We couldn't be more privileged. Imagine the people that feel like, as I was getting at, that they feel oppressed, marginalized, they don't matter. And Peter's writing them, telling them, are you kidding? You're, you're a royal priesthood. You have a great responsibility. You see, what we see with this holy priesthood idea is that they, we're, we're now, as his people, we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Well, how do we do that? Well, we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, that's part of our priestly duties. We, we offer up our, our lives. And then it says, if you make the connections over to Hebrews 13, 15, where it says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So one of the ways that we exercise our priestly duty is in worship, in the sacrifice of praise. Sometimes it isn't easy to praise. So much of the Psalms are in the midst of all these difficult things that are happening. The people of God resolve to praise him nonetheless. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's the resolves of faith, like the end of Habakkuk, the, the, the olive tree, you know, there's nothing, there's no fruit on the vines, there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll praise him, yet I rejoice. That's this idea here of a sacrifice of praise. So we also see with this idea of this royal language, just think of a few ways that revelation of the promises that Jesus gives to the churches. He just tells them that things like, I'm gonna give you authority over the nations. You're going to sit with me on my throne. You're going to reign on the earth. You're going to have authority to judge, and you'll reign with him. That would be Revelation 3.21, 5.10, 20 verse 4, 20 verse 6. And we're told in Revelation 5.10 that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
you ransomed a people for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. And what did you make them? You made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And then what's it say? And they shall reign on the earth. Not he shall reign. They shall reign. We are in Christ and we reign with him. So this is royal priesthood. It couldn't get any better. The future couldn't be any brighter. That's helpful in discouraging times. Just as God called Israel this royal priesthood, it's this language. If you look back in your bulletin there in the, in the reflection quotes, you'll see this Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And this is when God, right before he gives the Ten Commandments, he's delivered them out of bondage to Egypt, and now Moses is getting ready to go up to the mountain and be given the commandments, and they're scared to death when God speaks. And the, 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 it's like a lightning and thundering, and it, it's very scary. It's like a volcano up on this mountain. And right in the midst of that, God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what's interesting about that? It's all contingent on what? Your obedience. You shall be my treasured possession, which we are now told we are. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, but you've got to obey my voice and keep my covenant. And what do we see in the Bible? God didn't change the law. He fulfilled the law. How did he do that? All of Israel failed. There was an Israel of one. His name is Jesus. And Jesus fulfills perfectly Exodus 19, 5 and 6. So that you would be the people that are the treasure possession. You would be the kingdom of priests and you would be the holy nation because he obeyed his father's voice. He kept the covenant. He did everything where we have failed. None of us have clean hands and a pure heart. None of us have not, say, I've never lifted up my soul to an idol. None of us can come into the presence of God and ascend the hill of the Lord as Psalm 15 and 24 talk about. You've got to be perfect. And Jesus is perfect. And so God fulfills the law through his son and the son gives us his righteousness and he takes our debt and he pays for it on a cross. That's the good news of the gospel. So that we would, this glorious language now isn't said to us contingently. Jesus met all the demands of the covenant so that you would be this royal priesthood. And now we are. And one other way that we are his priesthood is we're to pray. Priests were always to pray. They represented God to the world. And so one of the ways that we do that and we represent the world to God is by our prayers. We're taught in the Lord's Prayer, right, to pray for his name to be hallowed, his kingdom to advance. How's he going to do that? He has to change hearts and minds to bring people to himself that they would honor his name, that they would do his will and that they would seek his kingdom. And so we pray. And prayer is the means by which God uses to advance his kingdom. May our prayers not be boring. So we're a royal priesthood. We're also a holy nation. And this is an interesting, because when you think of the word nation, you think, oh, we're, we're a holy country. And, and that, the, that isn't the idea that Peter has in mind. It's the word ethne. And that's where we get the word ethnicity. The nation was a people group more than a country. Paul is saying you're a holy people group. And I would just say, 
That's helpful for us to think about this idea of a chosen race, a holy ethne, and yet you've got all these different ethnicities. And I think what, when churches were being planted, the 70s through the 90s, it was this big principle called homogeneous principle. And the idea is like attracts like, and the idea was it's either going to be a white church, a Latino church, a black church, Korean church. You just reach your single ethne. And I don't think that that was a great idea when you're trying to reach your community, which is made up of all these different ethnicities. That if you've noticed, the churches that are being planted now, they're more biblical. They have this idea, now we're a holy ethne. We're trying to look more, that, that church should look more like heaven, it sh- and it should reflect the community. And so the church should always be trying to, to you know, the, pr- the principle here is that God chooses people that are the unalike. It's not a uniformity, it's a unity, but it's based on our diversity. People who wouldn't be friends other than, you know, their, their social economic background is totally different, or their eth- ethnicity or their education, and all that can be radically different. And we see God, when he plants a church like he does in Acts, they're often amazingly different cultures of people, like the church in Philippi. You've got Lydia, and she's a very wealthy woman, has her own beach house, and she has her own business selling, selling purple dyes, and she, she's, she's well-to-do. And she plants a church with a Philippian jailer. And he's just, you know, running a jail out of his house. And yet they form a church. The church is a beautiful thing like that. And so we're a holy people. And what makes us holy is Jesus. We have the same spirit. We have the same God. We have the same elder brother. And now we are called his prized possession. Think about that. You know, we often think, well, God is, maybe he's forgotten me. As, and he says in Isaiah 49, 15, you know, can a nursing mother forget her children? How much less I cannot, you know, she might forget, but I'll never forget you. In Isaiah 49, 15. God says we're in, we are called his inheritance in Ephesians 1. We think, how can that be? Aren't, aren't, he's our inheritance? No, no, he calls us his inheritance. He calls us his prized possession here. I mean, you think about if there's a fire, what's the first thing you do? They say if there's a fire in your house, what do you do? Fire breaks out, what do you do? One, get out, call, you know, call 911, but, but grab your prized possession, you know, grab the most important thing and, you know, take it with you. What does God grab? You're his prized possession. You were rescued from a fire. And Jesus went into the fire for you and suffered God's wrath on your behalf. And now he'll never discard you. You see, in Zephaniah 3, we're even told that God would even sing over us. He rejoices over us with singing. Is that how you tend to think of, of God and your view of how he, what he thinks of you? You're his prized possession. He loves you. He called you out of darkness. You know, I haven't seen the new Batman movie I don't have a whole lot of interest in seeing it because I always hear this expression. Everybody that's seen it says, it's a dark movie. I mean, I've heard that like 10 times. It's a dark movie. I'm thinking, well, I saw another one of Batman. It was pretty dark. And I said, well, this is darker. I'm like, eh, I'm not really interested in that. Well, I mean, what do we mean by it's a dark movie? It's got dark themes. Well, the reality is this. There's a lot of darkness in the Bible. 
And Jesus saves a people out of darkness into light. Darkness, what is that? It's a lot of things. I mean, Satan has his discipleship program. He disciples people. He disciples them in porn, and he disciples them in bitterness and nursing grudges. Just nurse on that. That's his main two discipleship tools. And he rescues us out of darkness into light. And Jesus comes as the light. And the world doesn't even recognize him because they're in the dark. And that's the whole idea of John as you read it. And if you just read it with the dark and light imagery, I mean, it just keeps showing up, right? Chapter one, it introduces the light and John's not the light. Well, who is the light? You know, and you keep reading and Jesus isn't introduced to like, you know, verse 14. And then finally his name isn't mentioned like verse 17 or 18. You're, but it's all about the light. The light has come into the world and the world doesn't know and because the world's in darkness. And then we see chapter three, the, the world hates the light. And because it doesn't want its deeds exposed. So it loves the darkness and it wants to just stay like, like roaches. Please don't turn on the light and the roaches are going to run and they hide. And then you've got Jesus saying he's the light of the world and he takes blind people's eyes and he opens their eyes because he calls people out of darkness into light. We've been saved out of a dominion of darkness and brought into what? His glorious light. Brought into his kingdom of light, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And he does that by forgiving our sins. We have redemption through his blood. And so now we're called to walk in the light. Have fellowship with one another when we're walking in the light. And we're to make no provisions for the flesh and living out of the deeds of darkness. The church is his ecclesia. What's ecclesia? His called out people. That's the Greek word. Ecclesia, we cut this ecclesiology. Got your ecclesiology down? What does that Greek word mean? It's just the Greek word for called. The church is a called out people. And his calling is a little bit different than, than Kiss's version of the song Beth. If you grew up like me playing tennis rackets to Kiss, and they, they had one hit that was actually like halfway singable, the rest of them were really bad. But if you know the song, anybody remember Kiss? How's the song go? Beth, I hear you calling, but I just can't come right now. Me and the boys are playing, and we just can't get it right. Just a few more hours, and I'll be right home to you. Beth, I hear you calling, but Beth, what can I do? You know? <laughs> All right, so what's the point? I think that's how people think calling. Like, Beth, I hear you calling, but I just can't come right now because just a few more hours, we just want to play. We just want to play with the world. No, no, when God calls his people, it's just the opposite. What can I do? You are going to respond. Those that the Father has given to me will come to me, he says. He makes them willing in the day of his power. He calls the people, and when they call, when he calls them, they come. And people like Paul get struck down, and they say, Who are you, Jesus? And they're radically changed. God calls the people and it's effectual. It will accomplish its purpose. It can't be denied. He calls his people. And he tells them here, this is amazing. Is they're called now, God's people, once you were not a people, now you are a people, once you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's he's taking the whole of Hosea and saying, boom, that's you. Hosea's got two sons. You remember Hosea marries Gomer, and Gomer's a prostitute. And he's saying, you all were a bunch of harlots. 
You are not my people. I mean, that's what you name these two children. Not my people and no mercy. That was the two children. And that's all of us in and of ourselves. And yet God loves Israel. And Hosea loved Gomer. You see, what Peter's writing here is Hosea's looking forward to a day when God would restore Israel after having rejected them because of their idolatry and naming these two children, no mercy, not my people. Yet one day at the end of Hosea 1, it says, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. And what Peter's saying here is he's saying Hosea's talking about you. That Israel's restoration includes Gentile Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. Though they were not my people, they have become God's people through his calling. They were people who had not received mercy, now they have received mercy. The church is now this new race made up of a, a holy nation, one ethnicity, even though there are all these different ethnicities. They're chosen by God on the basis of his predetermined love and born again of imperishable seed. Now, why is this so amazing? We go back to the temple. The whole thing started with the temple analogy, right? You know, Jesus is the cornerstone. We're building up, making this, you know, this house, house of God. We're built up as a spiritual house, 2-5. The interesting thing about the temple is prostitutes couldn't come into the temple. Foreigners and Gentiles couldn't come into the temple. Physically blemished, couldn't come into the temple. Nothing imperfect or unholy could come into the presence of God. And now we get in, Gentiles. And once again, how does that happen? Because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He's made us all of these things. And so what's the church to do? What's the purpose of the church? Well, you go back to the that statement, and the that statement is that the church's job now, our calling is to declare his praise. Our evangelism is to be doxological. What does that mean? You can't commend what you don't cherish, is what John Piper likes to say. We're always advertising. We're always telling people things that we like or don't like. Tell them about me. Tell them about how good God is. Instead of gossip, we give them gospel. We talk about the goodness of God and what God has done. You see, this is what the church, this is a bride now boasting about the bridegroom, boasting about her husband, declaring the praises of him who called her out of darkness. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You must become greater, I must become less. Let's listen to how Psalm This is all throughout the Psalms, but I just want to read you the beginning of Psalm 105, 106, 107, then we'll we'll pray. Listen to these Psalms. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let's pray.
Lord, we are grateful to be your people called by you. We thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you're the shepherd. Lord, we confess we are so often wayward sheep. And we thank you that you have found us out. And even today, Lord, we come back afresh into your arms. We pray that, Lord, we would be full of thankful hearts and change lives. Root out self-pity, root out bitterness, root out darkness in the recesses of our hearts and bring us more and more into this light of your kingdom that we would walk in the light as you were in the light. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.